Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. This morning we'll study chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Romans chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. If you're visiting with us this morning, you may be unfamiliar with the culture of our church. We study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. And there's a reason behind that. We believe that God ordained not only the words, but also their order. And that the Lord is good in caring for his people as they study his word. And so what that means is we've studied Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4. And this morning, verses 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul, as he's written in the book of Romans, he's writing to a diverse church. A church made up of Gentiles and of Jewish Christians. And the goal that he has in mind is to teach them the truth of the Christian religion so that they may be unified in the grace of Jesus. And here in chapter 4, he's specifically teaching on the doctrine of justification. And that doctrine is simply, to put it into a very short phrase, how it is that a man, woman, or child may be made right with God. How it is that a man, woman, or child may be made right with God. And specifically in chapter 4, he's gone to a number of different false strongholds that these people may have tried to hide under or cling hold to. The first was that they would be uh, like Abraham, accounted as righteous uh, by their faithfulness or by their keeping of the law. Then he looks to David and he says simply this, even David understood that righteousness is a thing that is given and it is specifically for those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Then he turns his attention from there uh, to the sacrament of circumcision and the thing he teaches is that we're not accounted righteous simply because we receive a sacrament. And then he goes on and he takes it yet again to the promise or the covenants of God and he says It's not simply the promises, but that you have faith in the one who gives those promises. And so we come again to that theme of the promises of God and the doctrine of justification in verses 15 through 17. Romans chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Where the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard your word. Lord, we ask for your mercy, your kindness that our minds might understand. 
Oh Lord, that we might have clarity on how it is that we might stand before you reconciled and not as an enemy. Father in heaven, I ask that this morning you would cover over any lack of clarity. Oh Father, that you would guard the teaching of your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. How can we be made right with God? The central question of the Christian religion. Moreover, I want to say to you the central question of every single life of every single person that is lived in all of time. How can we be made right with God? How can we stand before Him? The righteous God and not be consumed by his wrath against our sins. And again, this is what Paul is looking at. This is what he's concerned to teach. And if you've been with us for a few months, you may be wondering, you know, Pastor, this seems a bit repetitive. Is Paul laying it on a bit too thick? And friends, I want to tell you this morning, I don't think that he is. Firstly, because this is the word of God. It's as simple as that. This is what God ordained for his children to hear, to read, and to study. And if it is repetitive, it is because of our souls and the departures that you and I so often want to take. How many times when we ask ourselves the question of assurance, we say to ourselves, how is it that we know we might be saved? Do we say anything other than, because I believed in Jesus? Because I believed in Jesus. You may say, well, pastor, I know the answer. I know the right answer. Of course, that's what I say. But in your heart, what do you entertain? What are the things that you cling to? And you see, that's why Paul again and again and again goes simply to this doctrine. That we are made right with God only by faith in Jesus Christ. Because he knows that we in ourselves would like to say it's in my obedience it's in my church attendance it's in my parentage and the way that I was raised up it's in all the things that I myself have done and so Paul touches once again on this and the two things I want us to consider this morning from the passage these are the points of the sermon the first thing is that law brings wrath law brings wrath and secondly Faith gives grace. Faith gives grace. Last week when we took to this section of chapter 4, one of the things that I noted is that we're sort of taking these things out of sequence. And if you're a Bible reader, and I trust that you are, you may pick up on this. You feel as if we've come into the middle of a paragraph, and there's a sense in which we really have. We're in the middle of his thought. We're not at the beginning. Uh, We're sort of coming in at a strange point. But whenever Paul transitions here uh, in verse 15 and 14, uh, he is going specifically from the idea uh, that the law is the thing that we can earn our salvation with to then uh, faith being the very grounds uh, of our salvation. And in verse 15, it's quite simple. He's very clear and he says a strong statement. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
The law brings wrath. And whenever Paul writes this, he's writing to a group of people who know the law. Again, let me remind you, this is a church that's diverse. It's made up of Jewish Christians who profess faith in Jesus and have been redeemed, but who were raised within the house of Israel, who themselves not only have memorized the Ten Commandments of the moral law, but large swaths of the Old Testament. They are people who went to the city of Jerusalem. They're people who kept the feast. They're people who kept the law, who were raised in what we would say are religious and faithful households. And whenever they hear the Apostle Paul say simply that the law brings wrath, it makes them sit up as it would maybe me or you. Wait a second, Paul. Why would you say that the law brings wrath you see these are a people that have a cultural memory just like you and I have cultural memories and they recall that whenever the people of Israel were sent into exile at the hands of people who conquered their kingdom who killed many of their countrymen who tore down the temple and desecrated the site that that was all on the grounds of their unholy living and their departure from the law of God And so, Paul, you're saying to me that the law brings wrath? They had had it hammered into their minds and into their heads that they were a people taken into exile because they didn't keep the law and that they needed to keep the law if they were to come back into the land, if they were to be a people blessed again. And so, Paul, you're telling me that the law brings wrath? And maybe even they have the memory of the scriptures that they were taught as children. The testimony that the law is holy. That it's holy, that it's righteous, that it's good. And maybe some of these people are sitting and they're saying to Paul, Paul, wasn't this a gift given by God? The law written on tablets of stone at the top of the mountain? Wasn't this a gift given by God and a good gift to restrain people from sin? I mean, God, I mean, he's the author of this. He's a good God. He's full of kindness. He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. How could a good God give a law that is itself a giver of wrath? How is this? A thing that could be. Paul, are you saying, are you charging God with giving a gift that is itself not a gift? And the answer to those questions are simply a resounding no. Paul is not tearing down God in the giving of the law. Paul is not slandering the law in its proposition. He's not saying that any of the moral laws or even any of the ceremonial laws themselves are corrupt. He's not saying that they have no use. And he's certainly not saying that their author is himself in his heart or in his deeds wicked. Rather, the apostle is speaking specifically about those who receive the law. He's speaking about us and our interaction with the law of God. After all, what is a law? Well, it's a list of things that we should do and then a list of things that we should not do. That's as simple as it gets, really. 
and the ancient form of a law, the biblical form of law, is not divorced from the modern form of law in its basic element. There are laws, many laws in Germany, so many that I'm astounded at times, right? I learn about them from little signs as I'm hiking on trails or as my neighbor informs me about the process of getting rid of our trash. Laws. Things you should do. You should stay on the trail. You should recycle this piece of garbage in this bin. If you don't, if you get off the trail, if you go into the forest in this section, it's protected. You might kill a thing and you also might meet somebody, a forest monster, who will give you a nice ticket. If you don't handle your garbage in the right way, you might at least, at least have the disrespect of your neighbors and at worst one of those wonderful notes that come in your mailbox get it together you Auslander figure it out right laws make sense things you should do things you should not do it's really straightforward and in a biblical sense well it's not unlike that it's things you should do there is law keeping things you should never do law breaking black white, yes, no, positive, negative. And it seems simple, straightforward. It's something that we would hope that the children in the room could understand. However, what Paul says about the law is not that it brings order, not that it inspires prosperity, not even that it brings obedience or works righteousness in the heart, Rather, he says it brings wrath. It brings wrath. Parents, or even children, let me invite everybody in the room. Let's exclude no one. Because you're either a parent or you're a child of a parent. That's fairly inescapable this morning. Have you ever written an instruction in your house? Like recently, my wife decided to encourage our boys Do not go into the freezer and do not take for yourself the special peanut butter and chocolate candy, right? A law for the household. How often is that followed? Well, I can tell you how it was followed in the house this week. Don't take the chocolate and peanut butter candy. There remains not a single piece and the parents only had maybe two out of a whole bag. We got lawbreakers in our house, and I won't point any fingers at who they may be. Laws have within themselves the moral binding to obey them. But they can't make you obey them, can they? There has to be moral capacity to keep the law. You have to be able to stay on the trail. You have to be able to understand the instruction and then to take with the hand and move one piece to the next bin. You have to be able to control yourself that in a fit of rage, you don't actually follow through with taking your neighbor out. These are important things. And so whenever the Apostle Paul speaks of the law and he says it brings wrath, he's very intentional in the way in which he speaks. He is saying that according to the hearts of those who have received the law, the way that they relate to the law is that they end up breaking it 
and the result of the law is wrath rather than blessing. It's quite simple. When you break a law, there is punishment. And he uses the word here, wrath. I was speaking to Julius just before the service about the word. In English, these are almost synonymous, wrath and anger, those two words. But we use wrath in spiritual senses in the English language. It usually has to do with a righteous wrath, right? A well-founded anger. An anger that has moral uprightness. And there's some sense to what this is here. That the person who breaks the law receives the just punishment for the law. It makes perfect sense. If we break the law, if we speed, we should expect whenever the flash goes off that we deserve the ticket that then comes in the mail. That if we hurt our neighbor, we cause them bodily harm, that we rightly deserve the punishment that goes along with it. The government's not mean whenever it sends those things or when it disciplines or punishes an offender. It's just. And the wrath is deserved You see, the scriptures speak very clearly about who we are. Speaks very clearly about who all people are. Without exception, both men, both women, children, small and large. Psalm 51.5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What was he saying there? He's saying at the earliest second, a fraction of a second, the earliest moment of his life, from conception, he was a person touched by sin. What is sin? In the most simple term, it's transgression of the law of God. That's how the Bible understands it. From the very beginning... David says, from my genesis, the very second, even before I had lungs to breathe, I was a sinner. Contrary to the law of God, over and against the righteous things the Lord delights in and would desire from me. The smallest, right? How about everyone else? As you grow, do you just grow out of it? You grow out of that sin that the, that the toddler thoroughly understands. Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Any who seek after God. And this is God's testimony as he judges the heart. He says this. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's a strong statement. It's a hard statement. But it's a statement that says every single person, men, Women, infants, adults, and even older, all are touched with the reality of sin. And so what is Paul saying 
He's saying that when we come to the law, yes, that law that is good, that is holy, that does reflect the heart of a good God, that law that the Lord gave to us to restrain us from our sins, that when we meet with it, we are a people who have not the capacity to keep it. And what happens if you break a law? Punishment. Wrath. An anger that you deserve, a punishment that you have earned. And Paul is saying that when men, women, and children confront the law, it's not as if they come to this thing that can be life-giving and that they then fulfill it and they keep the law and they get the blessing of life. That they're right before God because they've kept it, but rather they don't keep it because they can't keep it because their hearts are fallen and sinful. And so the law for them brings wrath and only wrath. It's really quite simple when you put it into those black and white terms. And why does he want the person to have a clear view of this? It's because if we believe... If we believe that firstly we have the capacity, the ability to keep the law, we'll hope in ourselves. We'll say one of two things. I'm right with God because I'm a good person. I'm right with God because I'm a good person. That first thing that we might say. Or we might say the second thing. I'm not a good person. I need to get right with God. I need to clean up my act. I need to straighten things up. I need to be a good person. I need to start scaling the mountain that I might meet before his face so that then at the end of it all, God might look at me and say, yeah, you really are a good person. But you see, whether or not you think you already are a good person or you're not yet a good person and you need to get to be a good person, there's this big, huge omission in the midst of all of that, isn't there? What's missing? Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind. Because what have we already established? That our hearts can't keep the law in a way that would save us. We need a Savior. It's as simple as that. It's not the things I have done. It's not the things I will do. It's only the one who has done for me. And if you get this wrong, if you're a little confused about this, you don't have a Jesus that saves sinners. All you have is a Jesus that comes along other people who've also done good like he's done good. But you don't have a savior. And he wants it to be clear. You don't have mountains that you need to climb. You don't need to have an inflated view of yourself. Rather, you simply need to have faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and in verse 16, he makes this comment. That is why it depends on faith. Logically connected. If you can't keep the law, if the law is for you, wrath and being 
accountable to the justice of God, then you need faith. That's why it depends on faith. You need grace. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The his here being mentioned is Abraham. It depends on faith. When we were on our retreat uh, last week, our retreat speaker made a very keen observation. I hope that most of you have held on to this. Um, but he made a distinction between mercy and grace. Any of our retreat folks remember that? There's a difference between mercy. There's a difference between grace. It's very insightful. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. It's merciful. Taking and restraining the hand from giving out punishment. Right? Uh, it's, it's that sense of forgiveness, right? Like I can forgive the kids for eating all the chocolate candy. You don't get the time out for taking what didn't belong to you. But in a greater sense, what is it for us? It's this idea of mercy that the Lord doesn't punish us according to the things that we have done. We don't receive the punishment that we deserve. But grace is a different thing. And you may be saying, Pastor, hang on a second. That sounds a whole lot like grace to me. But I want to tell you that mercy has a negative aspect. You don't get what you deserve. Grace is that you get positively better than you do deserve. It's not only that you don't get the punishment you deserve, but you get what Jesus deserves. You get what his obedience deserves. You get what law-keeping should get. It's this wonderful thing. It's this wonderful exchange, this wonderful difference. And this is what Paul is zeroing in on, that there is grace and that's what's needed in the life of every man and every woman and every child. It's not obedience to the law. There's this, this sense that they've already failed in that, this, this settled truth of it. But rather people need grace. They need to receive what they themselves don't deserve and that's the favor of God. Not only that he doesn't consume you in wrath, but that he calls you a son, that he calls you a daughter, that he clothes you with Christ and washes you with his blood. And Paul says that all depends on faith. How does a person have access to this wonderful gift by faith? What's faith? What is faith? In a very simple form, we can simply say it is putting your trust in something, right? Your security is found in something else, not yourself. It is your hiding, if you will, under the shelter of something else. And in the case of a life before God, where is your faith to put its hope, its security in but Jesus that's what he's saying. It depends on faith that you can have grace, that you can stand before the Lord. Why? 
because you failed according to the law, but you are open, the door is open to you to simply have faith, to put your trust in someone else and to receive, to receive the grace of his obedience. The one who did keep the law, the one who actually did suffer for you, the one who did take the nails and all the mocking and all the scourging and indeed the wrath of the law, the just wrath of God. He took it for you. How do you get this? How do you have this? What's the one thing? Is it a keeping of the law? Is it a sacrament that must be done to you externally? Is it a household you have to belong to? No, it's simply by clinging to Christ by faith. Nothing else. Nothing more. Nothing less. And then Paul takes and he aligns this with this this testimony of Abraham, the promise of the covenant. He goes on and he says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What's he saying? He's saying to the Jewish Christian that's sitting and reading this, to anybody that would read this, he's saying this. If God told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations... Not just of a Jewish people, not just of Israelites, not just of of a circumcised few, but of of many nations. If, If the promise could be true that the offspring of Abraham will be more than the stars in the night sky, more than to be counted of the grains of sand on the seashores of the earth. That great number. A father of many nations... It cannot possibly be that they would only be that way through their adherence to the law and their keeping of it. Most households on the face of the earth aren't near to Jerusalem. They haven't received the law. They are ethnically not of the house of Israel. They didn't have a bar mitzvah, a bait mitzvah. They hadn't learned these things as a child. They hadn't received the mark of circumcision. They hadn't kept the feasts. And if they have any hope to be saved, it can only be through the hope of the promise that is had by faith. If they're to have righteousness according to the law, it's only going to be somebody else's righteousness counted to them. And the way they can have it is by faith. Why is Paul insisting on this? Well, it's because he's saying simply this. God's promise is true. God didn't give a promise to Abraham and then not follow it through. He didn't give a promise to Abraham that he'd be the father of all nations and then say to all of them, here's the list and here's the laws and here's the place where you have to go, but rather simply... As Abraham was accounted righteous by faith in the promise, you also ought to have faith in the God of promises. 
And so Paul is teaching simply this. Faith gives grace. The reception of a gift had by trusting in Christ. Do you know Christ and have you received this? Have you received this truly? Christians, if you have, I want to encourage you this morning to rejoice that you've received something that is wonderful and that's free. It's something that's according to God's promise and is the only ground upon which we can stand to simply know that before the face of God, we're no longer his enemies, but we're his children and that we're loved. And if you don't know Christ, and this morning you're here and you say, well, I'm here because I, I got a messed up life. Fifteen things I don't like about myself and thirty things that other people don't like about me. I'm a, I'm a terrible person. Pastor, you're right. That confession of faith or the confession of sin, I resound with that. Yeah, I've, I've done all those things. Sin against the Lord in thought, word, and deed. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, but for me, this is that first step towards getting my life together. Well, friend, I want to say to you this morning, just put your faith in Jesus. Not in your being here, not the things that you can do, not in, the, not in getting your life together, but in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing necessary. Bring all your baggage and all the dirt of the spiritual failures of your life and just lay it before Jesus by faith and hide in him. That's all the Lord requires of us. I invite you to him this morning and hope that you'll receive him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for their testimony. Father, for how you minister to your people, O Lord, through the truth that they testify to. Father in heaven, we pray that you would build us up in our faith in Jesus, Lord, where we are weak in faith, that, Lord, you would give it strength. Father, where we are lacking faith, that you would give faith even if for the first time. Father in heaven, help us to trust in him, the one who came and lived under the law, who fulfilled the law, and the Lord who took the pain of all of our sin and the punishment we deserve, that if we would believe in him, we would have his righteousness and that we'd be called sons and daughters. Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.